I invite you to stand as a gesture of reverence for the reading of scriptures. Several selections in Acts 2, which is Pentecost Sunday. I'm going to read from the screen here. Make sure my, I read the right stuff. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my slaves, both men and women. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. You may grab a seat. So we are in our final uh, week of our series on the mission of God. Uh, we started from Mark, as we've done all of our series this, this year, kind of starting and letting Mark be a springboard. And Mark shows a story of Jesus sending out the, the 12 disciples who had, he, had, he had called to be with him. So they start by being in his presence and that leads to being sent out on mission. And so we're going to kind of finalize that today, talking about the power of the mission, which is the Holy Spirit. And so to get there, let me start by this uh, thesis statement of Acts 1.8. Uh, I've preached this verse many times, taught it when I'm teaching about the purpose of the church, the mission of the church. And this is the resurrected Jesus right before he ascends to heaven. This is like his last words, so you think it's pretty important. He says, you will be to the disciples. He's talking to 11 hillbillies here. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is a tall task given to 11 hillbillies who just had quite a, a disrupting moment seven weeks prior where they had experienced uh, their, their Messiah, who they thought was going to be the hope of the world, being crucified. One of their guys betrayed Jesus. Another one denied him publicly. The rest scattered and ran. Then... The heavens shake and things go crazy and the resurrected Jesus comes back to life and gathers them back around. And now he's going to send them out and they do this. And so preachers like me will grab hold of this, and I have before a lot of times, and kind of emphasize like this is what we should be doing. This is the mission of the church. This is our job. We're supposed to be witnesses of the resurrected Jesus to the whole world, which is a, such a tall and overwhelming task that then we start to like gather up our worldly strategies and, and use some persuasion and coercion and marketing techniques to really make sure we give this our all and almost own a bit too much of it. And I myself, when I preach this verse, oftentimes skip the, 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 the first part of this sentence. Go to my next part. Before they do this, 
Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then they will be sent out. And I think this is the tension that the church has carried since then, where the Spirit is the one who does the work. It's the mission of God. I purposely titled the series that, not the mission of the church, because it's God on a mission. And the church is secondary. It is the vehicle through which God's doing his thing. But the Spirit is the one empowering it, but yet, these human beings, who Paul says carry this message in jars of clay, are going to be the witnesses. And I think there's a tension of, like, what is God going to do, and what am I supposed to do? And at times, the church gets really passive, because it's like, well, God's going to do the work, so we don't have to do anything. And at times, the church really wants to grab it by the horns and does too much, and tries to control and manipulate and coerce and market and sell and persuade and appeal to consumers' desires and do a lots of lots more than they're actually supposed to do. So we're going to see, though, in Acts 2, what the Spirit empowers the church to do and what what is the church's role versus what is actually God's role. And I'm hoping that that will encourage us to live into our attainable task. So it's Pentecost Sunday where the Holy Spirit's given. And I'm going to show quickly, I'm always overwhelmed with Acts 2. Acts 2 is one of these verses, go back, that you got to it's a lot in one chapter. I told Chelsea like three days ago, I'm like, I feel good about it if I could preach for a couple hours. I don't know how to get it down to 20 minutes, but we'll all find out together how I'm going to do that. So I'm going to show you, huh? No, man. You should have packed the lunch, Tim. We're going to stay around for a while. I got a lot of things to talk about. No, I'm playing. The Spirit empowers gospel proclamation and church formation. I'm going to talk about our role. First, let me mention Pentecost Sunday real quick. Pentecost was a feast established in the Old Testament seven weeks after Passover feast. Passover feast was meant to commemorate the great redemptive rescue act when God rescued and redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. And then Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and receives the law later on. And this becomes the time to commemorate the the receiving of the law as kind of the way of life for the people. Jesus then reorients both those significant Jewish holidays around himself. Passover feast becomes communion, and he says, you, from now on, when you eat this bread and drink the cup, you do this in remembrance of me. And then the Spirit, the Pentecost Sunday, gets pushed not towards the gift receiving of the law, but remembering when the Spirit was given. And so we're going to show then in this chapter, the Spirit comes and empowers immediately the gospel to be announced and the church to be formed. So we said in the beginning of, of verse 4 of, of, of chapter 2 that they were all in one place, then the Spirit came, and it was wild, like violent rushing wind and that kind of thing. And then immediately, the first thing that happens when they get the Spirit is they start, people start speaking in languages they couldn't speak. So at that point in time, Greek would have been like the second language, kind of like English is here for a lot of people. English is the dominant language here. Greek was the dominant language in that empire. And so everyone spoke Greek secondary, but many had primary kind of dialects. And at this point in time, Lots of Jewish people that spoke different dialects are in one space. And, and basically, these people were suddenly empowered to speak in another language that connected with those people's primary language. And the main message they said they heard was that in our languages, we hear them speak about God's deeds of power. That what God had done, what God is doing, was now being communicated to them. So the Spirit's first task is not to kind of like give us spiritual feelings or help us to experience like the spiritual life so that will come his first task is to make sure god's mighty acts are announced 
And then Peter jumps up to give clarity to this moment with this prophecy from Joel centuries before. Let's go to the next slide. So Peter's like, hey, let me clarify the situation here. It's early in the morning. These dudes are not drunk. They are actually doing something fulfilling the mighty acts of God here. He actually has to clarify that they had not been drinking. So, yeah, there might be some overlap between those who get drunk early in the morning and those who are filled with the Spirit and announce the gospel. And Peter needs to distinguish between the two by quoting the prophet Joel. He says, In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So notice here, mighty acts of God's mission and God's power. God makes a promise that he is one day going to pour out his personal and powerful presence on all people. He then fulfills the promise right now. He's pouring out the Spirit because this is what he wants to have done. Before any human agent does anything, he's pouring out the Spirit and it, just to emphasize that it is God's work and God's will, not the people, he's emphasizing that all people, we will blow up your human hierarchies. Women are getting the spirit, even though at that point in time, women's testimonies did not hold up in legal court. They were not seen to have trustworthy words. But in this situation, God is empowering them to speak. Slaves who had no social status were seen as subhuman. God saying, I will even empower them to be able to receive my spirit and speak. Because the emphasis is, it is God's doing. Gospel proclamation and the announcement of God's mighty acts happens because God wants it to. Whether a human being or a church or a Christian wants it to or not, his desire is to be known and for people to be aware of his action, his concern, his engagement and investment in the world. And he's going to make it happen. And so he's going to pour out his spirit and empower all people to be able to preach, basically. And prophesying sounds more spiritual, but I think this is the broadest definition of the term, which is to be a mouthpiece for God, to be a representative of the people and a representative of God and speak what God wants spoken to the people. And he's saying all the church now, whoever receives the spirit, is able to do that. So even upon my slaves, but notice, it's God making the promise God fulfilling the promise, and then God doing the saving. These people are just caught in the stream of what the Spirit already wants because it's the Spirit doing the work. And then Peter connects that big promise to recent events. Let's read this. This is a good summary of the gospel. Next chapter, next passage. So notice, I want you to see here, I've talked about before that the gospel is not how can I be saved, but how God became king again through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we'll see. Peter's going to sum up. These people are speaking the Spirit. This is from a promise of old. And let me tell you about recent events that let this happen. Fellow Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law, but God raised him up, having released him from the agony of death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Next slide. No, oh, go back one. Back one. There you go. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that, us, all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you see and hear. Therefore, 
let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. End of sermon. That was the gospel. There wasn't like, a, here's what you need to do yet. He finished it. It's an announcement that Jesus is now Lord, the crucified Jesus is now Lord, through the work of God raising from the dead. Now notice, these events happened seven weeks ago. Peter has been sitting on this information. He's not gathered new knowledge here. He could have already shared this story. He could have told the story of the gospel, but for seven weeks, this is a long time. Think what happened seven weeks ago. You can't remember that hardly. I mean, it's a long time ago. Seven weeks ago, these events happened, and Peter knew Jesus rose from the dead, but he has not talked about this until the Spirit was given, because the Spirit is the one who empowers the gospel to be announced. It's not Peter's plans. He didn't form a PowerPoint presentation. He wasn't working on it, forming his ideas. He was waiting, and when the Spirit came, then he was empowered to speak of and give significance to the events that he experienced and witnessed. Because, again, it's what the Spirit wants. Before, it's about what the church strategizes, what human beings kind of uh, drive and form together. It's the Spirit doing the work which allows us to, have to, to release our hands to him and let him do the heavy lifting. And the summary of the gospel, again, is how God became king through the life, death, and resurrection. Much bigger thing than just my personal salvation. Yet, when we get grafted into that big story, we get to receive forgiveness in the Spirit. So that same Spirit that empowers gospel proclamation is now available to all people. Next slide. I told you I was going to hustle, man, because Tim needs to get out of here and go to lunch. We can't do the two-hour thing. We have to do a 30 minutes or less, so we're going to move on here to when the, the, the people listening are then like, I want to do something about this. So verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is the dream of the preacher, man. Let them run to the baptismal after Peter preaches. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter, what should we do? Outstanding question, man. Y'all should ask that at the end of every sermon. Make me feel like Peter. Peter preached the dream sermon here. And Peter said to them, here's what to do. You repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. That same Spirit that empowered the gospel to be announced, it's the personal and powerful presence of God himself, is now ready to be inside and dwell within the physical body of new believers. Because they, all they did was receive Jesus. It's a gift. There was not, again, human drive, human strategy, human planning, human resources piled up. Let's make it all work out and happen together. God's spirit was on the move because he just wanted to at that time. And those who were ready to receive what he was doing, he gave it freely. It's a gift now. And now these people who were just now convicted of, of this new news had not even been Christians yet. This is immediately what starts happening next. God empowers these people to be the church. Next slide. Verse 42. Those same people, they were just convicted. They had just let this sermon change their life because the Spirit, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Notice that passive voice. The apostles weren't doing them. It's being done through them. The Spirit was making it happen. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, 
They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So it's the Spirit's job and will and power that then forms and builds and grows the church. Start to finish, this is the Spirit's job. He's decided when the gospel is about to be announced and proclaimed. He made promises that it was going to happen one day through his foreknowledge and plan that was going to happen. He empowered the voices to do it at that point, Peter, but then he says all people will be able to do and participate in this. And then he convicts people. They were cut to the heart by whom? Not by Peter, it was the Spirit. And then they received that same Spirit because they said yes to the gospel call, and immediately God forms these people to be the church. It's God's work, the Holy Spirit's work, not born of human playing and human strategy, which is such a good news to me. Because when I, if I feel the burden of, ask, of dwelling on the question, how can we build the church? That is backbreaking. I can't build the church. Or how can I even change myself to become a more Christ-like person? That is overwhelming. You have those qualities in you that you so wish would conform to Jesus, but just aren't. That is like a guilt-ridden, shame-ridden feeling. Or even my desire to change other people. If only I can get this person to start behaving like Jesus, I know what's good for them. Their life will be better. But that's overwhelming either. You can't control any of those things. But yet, church after church wants to so bad run ahead of God to make that happen. They take it on themselves. And we have done this too. I've done this too. To, to push all of our resources, all of our planning and strategy and marketing and manipulation and coercion and fear-based tactics to make something happen in the church. But this chapter is so relieving to me, but also challenging because it shows that God does the heavy lifting and we have a smaller, more attainable task that will allow and open up the way for the Spirit to do that, which is this. This is our role. This is the one thing that they did. Well, it's only four things, but it's rather one because you can't take any of them away. They, these Spirit-led people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These are habits and disciplines. The devoted verb in the Greek, I don't want to always be like in the Greek, but it's helpful here. This connotes a sense of continuation, a continual repetitive thing. Later in that passage it says day by day they were in the temple. They spent much time together, day after day breaking bread. That is communicating habits and rhythms of life. And this is something that all human beings are doing all the time. We are forming habits and ways of life. There's a, it's a normal thing in psychology that we kind of have two parts to our brain. Randy Clark's probably going to give me a bit more clarity about exactly how this works. But we basically have like the habits, like autopilot part of our brain that just going through the motions. And the other part that's like willpower that is paying attention to what we're doing. And the goal here is to get these habits to be second nature that are just a part of normal life, that then can let the God do the heavy lifting. God does the heavy lifting of being on mission, of empowering his people to proclaim the gospel, of building and forming churches, of making disciples, of changing people's hearts and minds and lives. We do the very small thing of habit formation, which if you form any habit, it's really hard initially, but then it becomes like second nature. The great example for this is brushing our teeth. Those have kids in the room, there are years of a war zone that they just cannot believe that they must brush their teeth twice a day. Or take a shower every day, like, oh, I just took a shower yesterday. Yes, 
and it'd be helpful for us all if you also took one today. And like, same with brushing the teeth. They cannot believe, man, I just did that 12 hours ago. Yeah, man, it's all the time. But now you get to a point, you don't even think about it. You don't leave the house without brushing your teeth. If you do, man, we need to have a conversation. Why don't you go ahead and have a seat? We need to talk about it. But you, most adults that are functional, just get in the habit, don't even think about it, even though at one point that was a lot of effort. Same with eating right or working out or read. Anything that takes a little bit of effort up front, it becomes second nature, then you can't imagine going without it. And that's something that all human beings can do anyway, form habits based on what you value. And he's saying that they devoted themselves to these four habits. One is the apostles' teaching. You need all four of these. You take one away and you lose it all. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles teach Christianity is rooted in that. It is founded upon people who watched and witnessed and stood with the Jesus as he lived, as he died, as he rose from the dead. Everything hinges on their testimony and passes down from them. So there's an increasing experience in the American church, I think, at least from my experience in Cincinnati, especially in my last church, of people longing for more of Jesus, but less of Scripture. They've seen how Scripture has been abused, has it, how it's been used for harm, how it, it's been a tool for oppression. We mentioned some of that even last week, of using the language of God to do harm. And so people are like, well, I like Jesus, but I don't want the Scripture. That's not going to happen. It, it can't work out, because Jesus is founded upon in the Scriptures. That's where we learn about who he is, how he operates, what he teaches on, what he values, what his mission is, what his character is. And so the early church got this, and they centered their gathering around regularly engaging with the Scriptures. So that's habit number one, personally and communally, coming back to the apostles' teaching about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Then the fellowship, the common life of the church. They made a habit of being together. They, could, they had to be together because the Spirit is one. And so if you have the Spirit and I have the Spirit and you have the Spirit and you have the Spirit, and we are apart all the time, we are betraying the Spirit's identity. It reflects the Spirit's identity when we make a point to gather. So Christian unity and our salvation are like two sides of the same coin. Saved people have the Spirit, and because the Spirit is one, make a point to be together. And yet again, there's a temptation in our culture that wants more of Jesus, but less of the church. For the same reason that they want more of Jesus, but less Scripture. Because the church has done, been harmful, has been abusive, has done harm. The stories are getting louder and louder, as they need to be, exposing how the church has done harm. Praise God, let that truth come out. Yet, the effect, one effect is, man, I don't want to trust this church then. But God, that is like betraying our identity, and Satan loves isolating Christians so he can pick them off. That's how he got the original temptation with Adam and Eve. He got Eve when she was alone, and then all hell broke loose after that. And so here, they're devoting themselves to the scripture and to being together, to the breaking of bread, which is early Christian language for the common, simple meal that made them come back to the foundation, which was the death and resurrection of Jesus. Took them back to the upper room when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood shed for you, and you now will do this together, remembering what made this possible. You only exist, we only exist as a church because of the life, death, and, resur death and resurrection of Jesus. If it wasn't for that, we would not be, and we would not have what we have. And so it is centered on the cross. The Gospels all lead to that point. And so this has been done lots of different ways over the years. Sometimes this is a common meal where you actually eat a meal together. Sometimes we do a simple sim a symbol of it to reflect that we are only here because of this common meal. 
we do, even when we do this, this gives kind of clarity and, and uh, a symbol to when we gather for meals. So if the justices are at my house last night, we're eating a meal together, that is still an extension of communion, that we break the bread in remembrance that we are who we are because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and to prayer. People of God that have the Spirit in them are now the intersection between heaven and earth. We pray the prayer uh, on earth that is, is in heaven every Sunday, and to live that identity out, we pray and long for the Spirit to come on earth. These are simple habits that we slowly can learn to integrate, that each one of them, if you're out of the habit, is really hard to start. But once you start it and experience some life from it, then it becomes second nature. So if you, those of you that are in a habit of coming to church regularly, if you miss, you feel like, man, I'm kind of like, this is weird. I'm not used to missing. But then, like, COVID will happen, and then everybody doesn't come for a long time, and then you're out of the habit. And even if you can think, this is valuable to me, it's, like, really hard to get yourself out of bed to keep going again. Or if you are a scripture reader, if you form that habit to do that every morning or every night, there's no, like, extra points you do in the morning. For some reason, that's a thing, like, you have to do in the morning. If you are in a habit of doing that, and then you go without, it will start to feel like, oh, my goodness, I'm dying. And so, like, for me, I started forming that habit about 10 years ago. And then, like, had children, and man, my first, just, it's almost like an alarm clock, Satan put an alarm clock inside his body, that when dad woke up to read scripture, it's time for Graham to get up. It's like, man, it doesn't matter. I, like, my alarm would go off, and I would think, how do I get from here to that couch with the Bible and the coffee before my son's feet hit the ground? And it's like, I went through so much strategy to make this happen. I put the whole coffee pot in my room upstairs in, my, in, in Cincinnati, over in the corner, had a little book lamp, and I crawled over to it to sit there silently, hoping that no one would disrupt it. And sometimes the first words of the day were like an angry outburst because I'm trying to read scripture, God. But that was happening because there had been like, you know, five or six years of experiencing slowly the fruit that will come if I sustain the habit. So I can do that small habit, 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, and then the spirit does the heavy lifting, where then there is character issues in me or church issues we're engaging in, or missional issues that we're trying to live into that seem impossible. If you think, how are you going to talk about this? How are you going to form the church around that? How are you going to guide through COVID? If someone had told me three years ago, hey, man, there's going to be a wild pandemic. Churches aren't even going to meet. And P.S., in the middle of that, you're going to move to Indy and start a new ministry. And your first five sermons are going to be with your voice bouncing around your office hoping people on a screen are still going to be there when you finish speaking the sermon. If you would have told me that three years ago, I'm like, man, I'm out. I think I'm going to go change jobs now. But, like, the Spirit does it. I do the little habits, and the Spirit does the rest, and you're still here. Like, we still have a church. He got us through a pandemic and a wild season, and we are still a present, functioning, healthy church because the Spirit wants it to be. And as so long as the Spirit wants it to be, we will be. And as so long as the Spirit wants me to keep doing what I'm doing, I will do it. But it all begins with the very simple habits. And if you study revivals, Christian revivals over the years, they all started with a small group of people that started to form these habits. I read about a revival in North Scotland in like the 1950s. It started with two women that were 84 and 87 years old that said, man, you don't have enough God here. God's not here. We need to pray. They started praying. They, just them two. And then a preacher came to visit, and they were like, we're going to keep praying for these people here. And then two years later, then a big revival started. So it was like multiple years of habit forming with a small remnant, and then eventually 90% of the island got saved. That started with those two. 
There was another revival in India in the 1930s. Started a big revival, and they traced back the origins three preteen boys that started to have a habit of being together around the scriptures, around prayer, begging God to do something. And then God did the heavy lifting. It didn't start with people strategizing in a room and, and trying to form a plan and a marketing strategy. Three preteen boys gathered around the scriptures, remembering the ways of Jesus, begging for the spirit to move, and he decided to move. You trace back lots of revivals like that. They start in that way. There was a, the second great awakening that kind of started in New York. They traced that down to a Wall Street businessman, 48 years old, and decided to start having a prayer time at lunchtime. He invited people to come. First time, one person came. He, kept, he said, we're going to do it anyway. Prayed, read scripture, begged God to do the heavy lifting. Eventually, more people came to his lunch, got up to hundreds, and then it started happening in other cities. That was kind of the beginning of the second great awakening in the 1800s. That these serious revivals of when God just decides he's going to do something start when a very small group of believers have a holy discontent and decide we are just going to come back to the little bits that we can't control. And he gives me a brain, an attention span, and I can choose to, to direct that in the small, simple habits of scripture, church fellowship, breaking your bread, remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus, and begging God to do the move. And whenever he wants to, it might be generations on the road, but we make our choice now. That's the bit we can control, and then God does the heavy lifting, which I need to hear. Thinking about the mission of God, that series feels big to me. feels huge imagining, and sometimes I'm paralyzed when I come into work like, I cannot believe this work I have to do. I wake up Sunday mornings and I almost have to laugh that this is my job to come here and talk about God. I, who am I to do this? But if it's the Spirit doing the heavy lifting, and we just do the habits, that feels attainable if we would step into it. And so I trust then that if we do that, God does the heavy lifting. And that gives me hope because I feel like that's attainable, but it also makes me a touch nervous because our culture is so busy and so distracted that it's hard to find even the time for the little bit we can control. So much of the work is just getting the church to do the minor habits that it's so hard to actually get those going so then God can do the heavy lifting. Uh, I remember reading this book recently. Marilyn's read it too, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Great book. Megan, let me borrow it. A long time ago, and it's still in my office. Um, it's a really helpful book where he describes, it's burned into my memory. This preacher out in Portland decided he was like really going to try to emphasize the stuff about the habits. And he ran all this through a psychologist, and he said, like, hey, we want to be attuned to the whole person. Do you think if we just embrace this, this is a good discipleship approach that kind of speaks to the whole person? And the psychologist is like, man, this all looks good. I think you're being attentive to the whole person and to how people grow. But he's like, one problem, though, is like, I don't think people have the time to do this. They carry around infinity in their pockets. Their schedules are jam-packed with lots of things clamoring for their time and attention. And if people actually took the time to engage in the simple habits you're describing, I think, it'd be, I think it could flourish. But my fear is people don't have the time or the energy. And so I feel that, too, not just for you all, but for me. I mean, my son's soccer team is playing right now in soccer. And he's not here. He's here. He's here because I'm here. <laughs> but there's so many people that probably are Christians that are there because that's just the way of life here. Oh, yeah, we have to do that sometimes. But my concern is that our schedules and our time and our attention spans get creeped in by so much demands that we can't even engage in the very simple habits that then let God do the heavy lifting. And so the question is, what are we willing to kind of give up to start 
our schedule and our attention around these simple habits and then letting things fill in, as opposed to starting with whatever the culture kind of presumes and demands of us, and then if we can squeeze God in along the way, that'd be fine too. And that's a small question that could open up a way of habit formation to then let God do the heavy lifting because it's his mission. He's announcing the message. He's forming the churches. He's making disciples. He's building the church. We form the simple practices and habits that then let God do the heavy lifting. Will we do it? Let's pray. Now, Father in heaven, we need your help to even start those habits. I think of the ones in my life that need work, that I've longed to grow in for a long time, that are hard to to make normal and make routine and make second nature. But God, maybe bring to memory the times when you stretched us to, to start and keep a new habit and then you bore fruit from it. Bring to our minds the times when we started engaging with the scriptures, made a new effort to connect with the church, made a devotion, a purposeful intention to, to be present more often and to pray. Remind us of the, about the ways that you did some heavy lifting in our lives, around our lives, through our hearts, through our choices, um, the fruits that you did, that you brought about through that process. And may those memories motivate us and drive us to keep those habits central and to contend for them. We need your help with that, Lord, in the face of so much that just distracts and pulls and tugs at our attention and our time and our resources. But we trust that if you do that, then you can do the heavy lifting of real world change. We release this to you. In Jesus' name I pray.